Hello and welcome to Frankenwine, the show where two sisters tell science if anyone orders Merlot, I'm leaving over a few glasses of the good stuff. So who are we and why are we qualified to shepherd you on your journey of scientific exploration? I'm Katie and I'm a scientist working on cancer research. And I'm Emma and I can honestly say I'm not qualified at all, except to say that I'm Katie's sister and I've heard her talking about it very passionately for many years. That's why we're also going to be talking about wine. Lots of wine. In today's show, we're exploring exactly what happens to your body when you drink too much alcohol, why some people get a hangover and others don't, and what your body is really trying to tell you. So sit back, relax, and pour yourself a glass of wine. Go on, I dare you. How bad can it get? Emma, do you know what the word phasalgia means? Well, Katie, as always, I'm impressed by your pronunciation. Thanks. Uh, But no, no, I've never heard that word. Well, it's actually the scientific name for a hangover. Mm, It doesn't sound very sort of Latin and scientific-y. Well, it actually comes from the Norwegian kvais. Kvais. Or kvais, maybe? Meaning uneasiness following debauchery. (laughs) Which I think is pretty good, actually. It's quite accurate. But I wonder why it comes from Norwegian. Anyway... (laughs) I don't know. The second (laughs) half is Greek, if that helps you. That does help me. Thank you. But to a biologist, the process of drinking alcohol is almost as exciting as their etymology. Oh, really? Mm. And this is because the effects of alcohol are a full-body, systemic event. Mm. And a drug like alcohol is unlike other drugs in that it doesn't just influence the psychological and emotional state. It's actually also about what's happening to you physically as well. Okay, so talk me through exactly what happens when we spend a night on the booze. (laughs) Okay, well, I might not know all of the details of your all-night benders. Probably good. But there are two things going on. Firstly, the body is trying to process and detoxify, but at the same time, you'll be riding the wave of the effects that this alcohol has on your brain. Okay, but this is unusual, right? Because you take a different drug like LSD, and it will give you quite a specific um like strong emotional experience right but it won't affect your body in any way near the same way yeah exactly so it kind of goes off like a hand grenade um okay so let's go through the first part of this process to begin with so when you drink alcohol it goes in through your digestive system obviously through your stomach and then onto your intestines which is actually where most of the alcohol gets absorbed into your bloodstream bloodstream okay that can't be good well no not really Once it's in your bloodstream, it then gets pumped all around your body. From your head down to your socks. Well, if you want to include socks as part of your body, then yes. (laughs) So this also includes it going into your liver. Yeah, I feel really sorry for the liver because the liver is the poor organ that has to deal with all of this. Yeah, so it's, it's fully your liver's job to try and detoxify. So apparently in the average liver, a blood alcohol content value, which I'll be talking about a lot. Okay. Of approximately 0.015, so that basically means 0.015 grams of alcohol per 100 ml of blood, can be metabolised every 60 minutes. Ooh. How many millilitres of blood do you have in your body? Um, I reckon it's about... I think for an adult, obviously it depends on whether you're a tall adult or yeah. a small adult. Height and weight, etc. Yeah, and also if you're a female or a male, but mm-hmm. I think it's around four to six litres. Okay. 
So that's thick, 6,000 millilitres. Interesting. So alcohol, sorry, blood alcohol content is quite important then. Yeah, so that's mainly what people talk about in the research around um, how your liver detoxifies. And mm. also in terms of drink driving, there is a specific blood alcohol content, obviously, mm. that um, is legal and things like that. So for, for the wine that we're drinking right now, how quickly can the liver detoxify it? Well, so one glass of wine is approximately um, five fluid ounces. I think that's like 175 mils in the okay. UK. Um, but it's all about the blood, blood alcohol content, mm. as I've mentioned, which depends on your sex and also your weight. So, for example, for me, I'm quite small and a woman. <laughs> so one glass of this wine probably would give me a blood alcohol content of around 0.023. So that's grams of alcohol per 100 mil. Ooh. So that would take me around 92 minutes to burn. So if there are about four glasses in a bottle, it should take me about nine out, sorry, six hours for me to metabolise this alcohol. Six hours, that's such a long time. Do you think? I thought that was not that long, actually. For one night, you're spending six hours just doing that. I think, uh, I don't know, that, that kind of help, helps me get to why hangovers are so bad, which I guess we're going to come on to in a moment. Yeah, and actually this is not even the end of the story. Okay, but how does, it, how does your liver actually do the metabolising? What is it doing? Well, interestingly, your liver actually responds to you taking in alcohol in a similar way to as it would if you'd eaten a poison. Ooh! But in this case, it's all down to the activity of one particular enzyme. Emma, do you know what an enzyme is? Um, oh, um, okay, I really feel like I do know what an enzyme is. But maybe I don't. I feel like it's something that's in your body that breaks down things. Like, um, you have one that breaks down lactose. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So I think you do learn this at GCSE, so I'm kind of hoping oh. that you know that. <laughs> what is it, like a lipid or a lipase? No, it's not. It's not. <laughs> lipase actually is an enzyme that breaks down lipids. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm kind of on the right track. Yeah, not really. Uh, anyway... Um, but yeah, it's a special kind of protein that breaks down specific molecules. Of course, it's a protein. Everything's proteins. Um, so this enzyme in this case is actually called alcohol dehydrogenase. Mm-hmm. And it specifically breaks down ethanol, so that's pure alcohol, into its component parts. So alcohol dehydrogenase breaks ethanol into a compound called acetaldehyde, which mm-hmm. we will talk a little bit more about later. Important then. Yeah, it's essentially a byproduct of this process, but it's super nasty, both for making you feel really hungover. Okay. Um, and also for increasing your risk of getting cancer. Oh, that does sound pretty serious. Yeah. So your body also needs to get rid of this. So it breaks down acetaldehydes with another enzyme called acetaldehyde dehydrogenase into acetic acid. Okay. So I think, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think the acetic acid is actually what makes your uh, breath smell kind of sweet. We use it a lot in the lab and it kind of smells like pear drops slash like sherbet. I'm pretty sure my breath doesn't smell like sherbet when I've been drinking. Yeah, maybe not that nice, but you've also probably got some ethanol unmetabolised um, in your mouth as well. I always feel like if you've been drinking too much wine in particular, this might be not, not be something I want to reveal on a podcast, but it sort of makes my teeth feel a bit furry. Mm, yeah. Is it that sort of feeling inside your mouth? No, I think that's tannins. I think that's a ah, different thing. okay. Anyway... Um, crucially this whole enzymatic reaction is it's a fixed and constant thing Mm -hmm. so depending on how much of that enzyme you have in your liver so some people who are chronic drinkers or alcoholics might have a lot of this enzyme readily available Ah. which means their liver takes less time to process the alcohol makes sense but your liver can literally only process a certain amount of alcohol at a time and if you drink more than your liver can process you start to get drunk okay so why 
do you feel so different when you're drunk compared to when you're sober? Yeah, so this is the second part of the process or part of the alcohol drinking experience. Mm -hmm. And this is the effect that that alcohol has on your brain. So once the alcohol has reached your brain again through your bloodstream, it starts affecting the chemical signaling in your brain by messing around with your neurotransmitters. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, this also happens in two different phases. Firstly, within the first half hour or so, you start experiencing an increase in your mood. Okay, well, that's the good bit. That's the good side of drinking. Exactly. That's when you start to feel a little bit jolly, maybe. Yes. (laughs) And this is all through alcohol's effects on dopamine. Okay. The alcohol will start allowing your brain to produce a little more dopamine, Mm -hmm. which means your inhibitions get reduced (laughs) and you start to feel kind of (laughs) good. But generally speaking, things that affect your brain or your nervous system are often considered either depressants or stimulants, and alcohol is generally considered a depressant. Well, that's so, funny. Even though it's the thing that's light- lifting your mood and making you feel a little bit better in that first few hours or so when you're a bit tipsy. Yeah, so that's only for the first half. Okay. Or for the first phase of your experience. Mm. And it's in the second phase where the real depressive effects of the drug start to kick in. So it begins to increase the levels of an inhibitory neurotransmitter called GABA, Mm -hmm. or gamma-aminobutyric acid, if I remember correctly. Very well done. Um, And reduce the excitatory neurotransmitter glutamate. So these two kind of work against each other. Um, But what this means is that your responses are dampened and it starts to make you clumsier, less quick to react to situations and a slurred speech, and your memory is also impaired here. Because these two neurotransmitters are working against each other? No, sorry, because it's increased the levels of GABA and reduced the levels of glutamate. Okay, so your balances are all out of whack. So this is when your ability to drive, making important life decisions or operating heavy machinery, all these things are going to be seriously impaired. Absolutely. So this is not the time to be doing anything important. (laughs) And this is also the time when your body starts going into panic mode. So you will Mm. also start to feel nauseous as the alcohol is irritating the lightning of your stomach. And after serious levels of alcohol, your body starts showing the signs of respiratory distress. So this is like quick, short breathing. Okay. Um, but when your body realises it can't process the alcohol quick enough, it starts shutting you down so that you could, it can throw all the energy at dealing with this poison. Mm. So that feeling of sleepiness is actually your body preparing to go into a coma. No way! I know, how creepy is that? That terrifies me because it's. I've often felt quite sleepy after drinking wine, so that's my body preparing to go into a coma. Yeah. And only when the, the point where... It's not like, you know, a red, glass of red wine makes you sleepy. It's mm. it's more the people who you see sort of passed out in the street. Yeah, that yeah that's of. more it. But that's still, you know, how many students up and down the country have practically been in a coma? God, yeah. And it's so weird as well, because this is um, at the same time that your body's not functioning anywhere near as well as before the alcohol. Mm. You know, you talk about your inhibitions being lowered. People start to feel invincible. I know. So it's such a strange thing to put your body through if you think about it. Because here suddenly people might feel like they're awesome dancers mm-hmm. or That's really <laughs> great at chatting up potential love partners um, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's what's happening when you're drinking. Um, but then we've talked about people practically going into comas. So what happens when they wake up, when they start to feel really, really rubbish in the morning? Well, do you have any ideas? Um, I think people often talk about it being something to do with you being dehydrated. Yeah, so the main contributing factor to making you feel hungover is actually the dehydration. Mm -hmm. And this is partly because drinking alcohol makes your kidneys flush a whole load of fluid towards your bladder, otherwise known as a diuretic, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. 
Okay, so people also say that if you drink like a pint of water before you go to bed after you've been drinking, you're going to feel much better in the morning. Is that true? Well, obviously this is biology, so it's not as simple as that, of course. There was actually a study in the Netherlands recently that looked at people who drank and ate before bed. They found that the people who did that felt slightly better, but it wasn't enough to be significant. Mm. So I would (laughs) still do it, but even better... I would drink during the night to replace what you're losing as you go. You mean drink water during the night? Yeah, yeah. So people often say as well, you know, you have one alcoholic drink and then one drink of water. So there is something to that. Yeah, that's smart. Okay, but what else is going on that's making you feel so rubbish? Because it can't just be about water. Yeah, so there's a few things. The dehydration does go hand in hand with hypoglycemia, which is low blood sugar. Okay. Um, And also an imbalance in electrolytes in your blood, like salt and calcium. Mm. And also a vitamin B12 deficiency. Really? When you drink? Yeah, apparently. Hmm. Arguably, if you're looking for a hangover cure, replacing these things might be a good thing. So maybe you can make a banana smoothie, which might be high in calcium if you use milk or fortified alternatives. Mm -hmm. And potassium and magnesium, which are kind of electrolytes from the bananas. Okay. Um, And even if you added some ginger to that, which is Mm -hmm. an anti-inflammatory, you might reduce some of the nausea caused by caused by inflammation of the stomach lining okay I've, I've heard that some people do suggest sports drinks but frankly oh, i can't stand the I idea too much sugar yeah lucas aid when you're feeling oh, over. No. I, I actually can't eat anything eventually i'll be able to have maybe a little bit of dry toast with nothing on it and oh. then sorry that's the only thing i can handle and then rice sometimes i can i can really? manage rice or a couple of oranges do you know what works best for me what a cold very cold coca-cola and a packet yeah. of crisps coca-cola i don't know what it is i always think it's funny when you see people drinking coke in the office mm. it's like okay you've been on a night out <laughs> really i think i was thinking about it i think it might be something probably the sugar is good because you're replenishing your lost sugar okay um but also maybe something to do with the bubbles that's apparently supposed to ease your stomach isn't it Okay, but this feeling really rubbish is actually part of the other outcome of drinking. And this is down to the chemical reaction that I was talking about earlier that produces acetaldehyde. Mm -hmm. So this builds up quicker than it's metabolised into acetic acid. Acetaldehyde is actually really, really bad for your tissues and probably worse than ethanol is. But what about the headache? I always get a really bad headache. Well, I think this is in part caused by the alcohol causing your blood vessels in your head to expand. So Ooh. it kind of changes the pressure. Seriously? Yeah, but probably also something to do with dehydration and reduction in blood sugar again. Okay. But what about hangover cures? Cure me. What about, I don't know, hair of the dog? Yeah, hair of the dog really has no evidence behind it being a good idea. And from a scientist's perspective, surely taking in more alcohol will only add it to the queue of ethanol modern ethanol molecules waiting to be processed Mm. and it could even slow down your liver's ability to process the really nasty acetaldehyde so personally it's also never helped yeah uh well i don't know if it sort of extends your your drunkenness i guess because you probably wouldn't even notice Mm. but um i like the idea of that the queue of ethanol molecules waiting to be processed (laughs) next time someone suggests that to me that's exactly what i'm gonna say i have that in my mind like a little like little molecules lining up yeah i I like that image um okay so so your advice what's the cure my recommended cure would either be don't drink or just wait give it time okay but here's another question for you why do I get terrible hangovers, but some of my friends don't get any? 
Yeah, so this is a really odd question. But there was actually research done recently that tried to look into this and surveyed loads of uh, university students in Canada. Mm-hmm. So it turned out that the people who didn't feel as hungover just really didn't drink as much. No, wait, there has to be more to it than that because I have friends who drink the exact same amount as me and they will get zero hangover. And these people also tend to be really smug, funnily <laughs> enough. <laughs> really? Well, there could be other things to it, like some people might have more of those liver enzymes readily oh, okay. available. Or maybe they're alcoholics, and oh. so they process it really quickly, and I maybe. just don't realise. <laughs> but also, interestingly, there are some people of East Asian heritage uh, who have mutations in their alcohol dehydrogenase gene that means they can't metabolise the alcohol so quickly, so they get drunk really quickly. <laughs> But it also might depend on things like how much you have to eat before you start drinking. Okay, so the old line your stomach, eat loads of pasta before you go out line. Yeah, so again, it's not quite black and white, but certainly certainly, if you have a really big meal beforehand, you'll end up absorbing less alcohol. So some people say that it needs to be really fatty and greasy so that mm. because fat doesn't absorb the alcohol, so it kind of blocks it. Oh, okay, so there is actually something there. Yeah, and probably carbs because you're putting on loads of sugar, so maybe you prevent some of the effects of that I'm not sure okay um and of course your hangovers will get worse with age yes why is that well partly because your body generally gets more rubbish at taking what you throw at it Mm -hmm. and also because your percentage body fat increases and your water content decreases which means um and fat can't absorb the alcohol this is also why women tend to have lower tolerances but this Mm -hmm. is again more about how you process the alcohol not how you deal with the effects of it Okay, so that is just horrible news for hangovers and also ageing in general. It all sounds terrible. Um, But basically, this is completely hopeless. Is there anything good you can tell us about drinking? So we may often hear in the media that some level of drinking certain things is actually good for you. So I've done a little bit of research to find out whether this is all actually true. And is it? I mean, they do say there are antioxidants in red wine, right? So any fermented product will contain lots of things like antioxidants. So do you remember what antioxidants are? Um... Again, I'm going to hazard a guess. Okay. I think that antioxidants... Oh, and I hope you'll allow me to describe my visualisation of antioxidants as well. Okay. So I see them as um, things that break down bad things, like pollution, for instance. And I envisage little blueberries as the antioxidants. Really? Because there are loads of antioxidants in blueberries. Correct, A-star? I'm going to say that's wildly incorrect. No! (laughs) So as part of the chemical reactions that are going on in your body the whole time, there are these things called oxidation events. Oxidation events, okay. So these oxidation events release these things called free radicals. Uh Aha, heard of them. Also called reactive oxygen species, which can be really damaging to our cells and actually put our cells under a really specific type of stress called oxidative stress that I do a bit of work on at the moment. Mm -hmm. Heard of that too. Have you? Yeah, oxidation. (laughs) Oxidative stress. (laughs) Oxidative stress. Stop trying to sound clever. (laughs) Um, So this can actually cause our cells to die. So antioxidants is really a broad term for anything that reduces these oxidation events from happening. So they basically stop the release of these dangerous molecules or when they are released, they kind of um, stop them from just running around unstably. That's some clever little blueberries. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So if you remember from our nutrition episode, we had a lot about polyphenols. Mm Mm-hmm. So in red wine, there are these antioxidants which are classed as either flavonoid or non-flavonoid polyphenols. So some of these 
apparently include quercetin, catechins, and this substrate called resveratrol. Resveratrol. Yeah. Which is thought to prevent damage to the cardiovascular system and also prevent the build-up of fatty acids and cholesterols, which can therefore then lead to cardiovascular disease. Finally, some positive news. Is this mainly just in red wine? Yeah, there are apparently nine times more antioxidants in red wine than any other type of wine, but there is also evidence that champagne and other sparkling Um, wines could hmm. be good for you, as they also have high levels of antioxidants in them for some reason that I couldn't figure out. If anybody knows, please do let me know. Doesn't matter as long as I can still drink champagne. (laughs) So the WHO, as in the World Health Organization, actually does say in their reports, which I had a great time reading last weekend. Oh, sounds fun. Yeah. That um, on alcohol consumption, that moderate levels of alcohol can reduce score risks for both uh, cardiovascular disease and even diabetes, as long as you stay away from the really sugary drinks, obviously. Okay. Um, which champagne can be. Yeah, times. what a shame. Mm. But are you really suggesting that people should drink red wine and some champagne uh, to prevent themselves from getting cardiovascular disease? No, because actually any amount of alcohol you take in can increase your risk of liver diseases and also cancer. Mm. And arguably you could get all of those polyphenols and antioxidants from other sources. Like vegetables? Exactly. Okay. And kombucha. Kombucha. I had a kombucha today. I love kombucha. Mm. Problem with kombucha, if you drink it in the office, people think you're drinking beer. Oh. Just looks like beer for some reason. Just tell them about the antioxidants. That's what, do you know, that's exactly what I will do tomorrow. (laughs) Um, Okay, so that's good news, but I'm guessing that the World Health Organization had some pretty bad things to say about it as well. Yeah, so that was pretty much the only good thing in like a 100-page document. Oh, what? (laughs) So the WHO classifies the negative effects of alcohol into three different categories. Okay, hit me. Number one is due to the toxic effects it can have on your organs and tissues, which Mm -hmm. is what we've been talking about. And I mentioned that acetaldehyde was a carcinogen. Yeah. Actually, as a cancer researcher working in oral cancer, I'm faced every day with the fact that alcohol causes cancer. And it really is an irrefutable fact. You can't Mm. move away from that. And obviously, you're much more likely to to develop cancer if you drink a bottle a day and less likely if you have a glass of wine every now and then. And there are lots of other factors involved in cancer development, but it's still a really important thing. Okay, so we don't want to freak everybody out, but watch your alcohol consumption. Yeah. Number two is the effect on coordination, consciousness, cognition, perception and behaviour. So Mm. this includes injuries that occur as a a result of drinking. Oh, okay, yeah. And also the impairments in your judgement that might lead you to get in a car, for example. Mm. And also may include the propensity of people who drink a lot to develop depression. Oh, really? Depression? Yeah. And number three is the dependence. So I actually read in this um, WHO report, that if you start drinking at or before the age of 14, your chances of becoming dependent on alcohol and consequently developing depression are massively increased. Oh, wow. We could probably delve into this in a whole separate episode. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. But again, it's, it's just moderation, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And finally, I'll just mention that the WHO... Do other people call it the Who, or is that the Who is a band, Katie? I think it's one of Dad's favourites, isn't it? Is it? I have their records at home. (laughs) Anyway, the WHO also talks about the effects that alcohol has on the population level. So, obviously, if someone gets wasted, runs around town, smashing windows, that's (laughs) going to have an effect on society. That's true. As so does people being admitted to hospital due to alcohol abuse, or because Mm. they've drunk during pregnancy. Um, or because they've managed to tear a ligament in their ankle whilst drunk on a night out at uni. 
that's going to cost the medical <laughs> services some money. So it affects people even if they don't drink at all. Um, that's a really interesting point, actually, because when you're in that situation and you're asking yourself, like, should I have one more or should I leave it there? I don't think you ever consider the consequences of what happens if you go over that edge. No. Um, but yeah, for that, I suppose it's probably really important to be aware of the relationship you have with alcohol. Absolutely. And especially because you're, as we've talked about, your mm. ability to make smart de- decisions is impaired. Yeah. So I also think it's really good to be aware of what you're capable of, even if you're not going to be aware of what you're doing in that moment in time. Yeah. And if you educate yourself about this, it's probably not going to affect you adversely in quite the same way. There are obviously loads of reasons for people to drink. And I think many of you would agree that cold pint of beer uh, with your friends after a hard week Mm. of work can actually be really beneficial. Yeah, completely. So for me, it's just about knowing what heavy drinking looks like and feels like for you and what it means for your health, your mental health and for those around you. And for those around you. Yeah, absolutely. One question I've got for you, Go for it. which you may not be able to answer. Probably not. Uh, something that's always been really strange to me is when people report that after a night of heavy drinking, they can't remember how they got home. Yeah, OK, so this is really interesting. I'm glad you asked this. So... We'll maybe talk about memory in a different episode. Okay. But for now, I'll just tell you that there is a certain part of your brain that works on direction and knowing your way around. It's Mm. like your location sensor. And it's actually like certain groups of cells will be assigned to a certain place. So you might have a certain group of cells in your brain that are being assigned to this room that we're in right now. Oh, seriously? Yeah. That's quite cool. And when it comes to alcohol, that part of your brain is not affected by alcohol at all. So that's why people who get really, really drunk still end up going home because that part of their brain still signals. That's an amazing fact. I love that. Yeah. Glad I asked. (laughs) And now it's time for some light refreshment. What are we drinking today? (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked, because today we're drinking Daniel's Drift, which is an expertly blended Marks and Spencer's wine, but it was actually pretty good, about £7, so not expensive. It's um, a mixture of Shiraz and Cabernet Sauvignon, and it's from uh, South Africa, Western Cape. Okay. Um, I was kind of struck, I wanted to try this because, well, first of all, it's vegan, which, you know. I like that. Uh, secondly, I love Cabernet Sauvignon. But also, it talks about how it's un-oaked, which I thought, you know, most bottles will say that they are oaked. I, I haven't seen many that say they are un-oaked. What, what does that mean, oaked and un-oaked? What's the deal there? Right, well, oak is used um, to age a wine. So you can picture the, the uh-huh. oak barrel. And what that does in a white wine is it adds colour and depth. Um, and in red wine, it doesn't affect the colour so much, but it certainly affects the flavour. And in the oak, believe it or not, it's got a compound that's very vanillary. Mm-hmm. So when you're drinking a wine that's been aged in oak, you can really taste the vanilla. And that's normally the indicator. Okay, so this wine that we're drinking right now is mm-hmm. unoaked. This is unoaked. So it so should taste what, vanillary. What, what does it taste like to you? Yeah, I can't taste any vanilla. <sighs> vanilla, I guess. <laughs> It's very smooth, isn't it? But I think it's quite sharp. Yeah. It is smooth, but it's also like quite fresh. Yeah. yeah. Rather than like thick and heavy. And I suppose quite a lot of Cab Sauv would be quite heavy. I mean, it's not like a claret, but... Yeah. Yeah, it's, I think it is often oaked. Do, do you have to say Cab Sauv if you like Cab Sauv? No. <laughs> it's just, okay, so it's it's like just you. saying Pinot instead of Pinot Grigio. <laughs> no, I think people say Cab Sauv all the time. Dad says Cab Sauv. Yeah, but Dad... dad 
makes acronyms and shortens every word. That's true. No, you don't. Cabernet Sauvignon will will suffice. Although I guess that is a mouthful, isn't it, Cabernet Sauvignon? Yeah. So I just wanted to try this and, and have an unoaked wine, but I do think it is sharp. I think it's spicy. Mm-hmm. Spicy. Spicy. And I think that's because it's unoaked. The quality of it is smooth, but the taste is, is spicy because it hasn't got the smoothness of the vanilla in the taste. Do you see what I mean? Uh, yeah, I kind of get that. Although I only can taste the spiciness mm. after you said that. Oh, okay. So why, do you, why generally do you like Cabernet Sauvignon? I, lo- I like a full-bodied wine. This is probably only medium-bodied. Why is that funny? <laughs> Every time someone says full-bodied... It just makes me giggle. I don't know why. It sounds like... Full-bodied. Yeah, I don't know. It sounds I crazy. really like a full-bodied wine. That's why I don't like Pinot Noir, because it's too light for me. It sounds like you're about to say, I I like a full-bodied woman. Like you're a kind oh, of... thanks. <laughs> it sounds like you're some kind of old Do you know what it sounds like? It sounds like um, uh, Mark's dad from Bridget Jones's Diary. Yeah. You know, and he's like, I like a girl you could, who, oh, you could park of. a bike in her backside or something. Yeah, just kind of more creepy than lovable. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Anyway, you like a full-bodied woman. I like a full-bodied wine. <laughs> and this is this is medium-bodied, but I, it, because it's kind of sharp and Sorry. it's got a bit of heft to it, I, I like it. Got a bit of heft to it. Yeah. It's not as hefty as other Cab Sauves. Okay. But maybe a Cab Sauve from France would have more heft. More heft. This is South hefty. African. Okay, okay, okay. So, yeah. You know, interesting fact for you. Mm-hmm. Cab Sauve was, is quite a new grape. So it was created in uh, uh, the 1900s, and it's obviously a blend. The 1900s? Sorry, the 1600s. Oh, okay. That sounds more like wine. Yeah. And it's, it's obviously a blend of uh, Cabernet Franc and uh, Sauvignon Blanc. Oh. And they didn't know that until they did some DNA testing on it to try mm. and figure out what it was. And that's how they figured it out. DNA testing. So I've never heard of a Cabernet Franc, Franc, Franc before. Franc. Franc. Um, that's because you is are... That a wine on its own? Well, it's a grape. Sorry, is that, do you get wine from those grapes on their own? But often you'll get a blend in a Bordeaux, say. Okay, okay. But you know the trend in France is to name a, a wine after where it's from. Right. As opposed to in America or Australia, you name it after the grape type. So you could have a, a Syrah in France, but it wouldn't be called a Syrah. The name on the bottle would be where it's from, which is called an Appellation. Oh, so that really confuses me because sometimes when we're trying to find wine and I'm like, hmm, maybe we should go for this type of wine. Mm. And it doesn't say that it has like some super long name of some little village in France, which isn't mm. helpful, yeah. actually. I actually find that really annoying too because I like to know what grapes are in it. Yeah, and exactly. often it won't, it'll have the appellation, so that's the name of where it comes from, but it mm. won't, and the chateau, but it won't have the grape types. And obviously that's the thing you need most of all to know what yeah. kind of wine you're getting. You want to know the grape. You want to know the grape. Yeah. So... What are you going to give this out of 10? I mean, it's fine. Oh, not your thing. It's fine. I can't, it doesn't really taste of much for me. Mm. It's so smooth that I can't really taste anything. Oh, I get so much from it, taste-wise. Okay, so I, I'm going to give it 5 out of 10. It's oh. bang straight, straight down the middle. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, I'm going to go for 8. Oh. That's the highest score I've done so far. Yeah, that's so unusual that I... Go low and you go high. Mm. Maybe it just shows yeah. that we just have different tastes. Let's next week try a claret. Mm. My fave. All right, fine. I think we need a roast with the claret, though. Yeah, we possibly. can't have it with a packet of fruit crisps, <laughs> can we? Five out of ten from me, eight out of ten from you. Mm-hmm.
Throughout human history, or at least as far back as 7000 BC, drinking alcohol is the one social practice that has developed independently in almost all human cultures that have existed on Earth. In fact, there are only a few cultures who don't drink alcohol. It is a practice that is so dominant, pan-historical and pan-cultural, and yet probably the most counterintuitive thing we do. It reduces our ability to function, some take a moral issue with it, and it poses a significant social and economic burden on society, according to the World Health Organization. But pretty much everyone does it. Obviously, plenty of cultures have managed to avoid alcohol, for example as part of Islam, but it's still rare that that's 100%. Did you know, for instance, that Chad, a majority Muslim country, often tops the global rankings on alcohol consumption? However, something strange is happening within society today in that fewer and fewer young people are drinking alcohol. Evidence would suggest that Generation Zers, as in the post-millennial generation born 1995 to 2012, are drinking 25% less than millennials were at the same point in life. So this is a pretty crazy statistic. And to understand this phenomenon, we thought the only thing we could do would be to actually speak to a Generation Zer. And conveniently, we have one in the family. Angus, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So tell us, you, as our younger brother, who's had exactly the same upbringing as us, choose non-alcoholic drinks considerably more than we do. Can you help us shed some light on the change in drinking behaviours of your generation? So for my part, I think I have to start with this aspect of social media and self-curation. So what do you mean by self-curation? Um, there is so much more exposure uh, about our personal lives on social media. Right. So going on a night out, there will normally be evidence that that occurred. Mm. That will be shared on Facebook, on Instagram and Snapchat. And um, there is an element which you don't really want to record uh, yourself going on the lash. Yeah, you don't want want people to see your bad moments, do you? So this is really interesting because, I mean, when I was at uni, for example, what we used to do is take like an actual camera. Oh, yeah, This was before Instagram and before any of that. So I would take my camera in my little bag and take photos Mm -hmm. and then upload all the photos onto Facebook later. In an album of like Friday night and then you'd have Saturday night with about 30 photos in each album oh more than that god I have like several hundred but my point (laughs) is there was still evidence of that night out but it was kind of funnier maybe because there was like a lot more as we say there were lots of photos and it was all just a bit of a laugh when Mm. people look silly maybe the thing about Instagram nowadays is that it's so selective you get one or two photos and you kind of feel under pressure perhaps to look like the ideal situation so perfect makeup and having a wonderful time spending loads of money maybe that kind of thing it's all just about high gloss isn't it you have to look perfect it's all about living your best life do you find that angus so if you were you know actually recovering from a hangover Hmm. you wouldn't be able to go out and do any of those things that you then aspire to yeah and you know we're more concerned about money and it's more about experiences for my generation i think Going out and drinking with your friends can be that sort of experience, but I think there's more of an emphasis on kickbacks nowadays than it is on massive nights out. Do you know what kickbacks are? No, that's too young. Yeah, what is the slang there as well? Right, well, I mean, kickbacks are, um, they're like a chilled house party, but part sleepover as well. I've never ever heard of that before. Like a little bit hygge. What? Oh, you know, like like cozy, just chilling out with your mates kind of thing. You know, going home, playing games, doing that kind of stuff. So interestingly, actually, on that, do you think it's also affected the drug taking? Because I I read a stat somewhere that um, marijuana, marijuana, weed, 
Um, it's still like a really big part of youth culture. Mm. Uh, do you think it's that drugs are kind of left on their own and it's specifically alcohol? Maybe that's because people sort of see taking that drug as, as somehow a way of advancing themselves or enhancing themselves, a bit like how we've, we've spoken previously about people using microdosing. Yeah, I do see your point, but I think that's probably specific to things like microdosing, whereas weed, I don't know, seems a bit different to me because mm. it is actually a depressant instead of a, right. a yeah. stimulant yeah. again. Um, although I think that uh, weed is going off on its own sort of track in general, and this comes from my personal experience, I think my generation are far more aware of the uh, health risks and what is detrimental. So that's really interesting because baby boomers were statistically the highest drinkers or the biggest drinkers, sorry, um, their generation. So people who were born in 50s, 60s. But a lot of us lot as kids of baby boomers have kind of seen relatives uh, suffer. So Mm -hmm. people um, have developed cancers and liver diseases. And that's kind of part of, I feel, why people are put off because we're so we talk so much more there is a real um awareness like a public awareness and again talking as a cancer researcher we've seen oral cancer rates decreasing and that is largely thought to be because of really efficient public health measures so there is that awareness there which is good and I think people are just so much more health conscious now generally. I also think, Maybe. this might just be from my own personal experience, but I, I feel that smoking might be having the same sort of effect. Yeah, I, I hardly true. know anyone who smokes. Yeah, yeah, definitely when we were teenagers it was probably super cool to be smoking, mm. but nowadays it's just not the it's same. It's not cool at all, is it? Yeah. So is the generation after you going to go back to baby boomers and start drinking again? Because they're all depressed about all the facts about health. It, it depends what happens in society because I don't think it's too um, out there to suggest that once upon a time, 200 years ago, during the Victorian period, there was a change in, uh, in sort of mentality towards uh, alcohol consumption. And it did go back towards this idea, I think, sense of uh, enjoying oneself and the fruit of life by going back to sort of consuming uh, alcohol and then the baby boomers in the 60s having this whole concept of exploring uh, drugs and exploring, you know, I, th- I think also historically, it's interesting to to say that up until really quite recently, alcohol was safer to drink than water because there was so much contamination in the water, mm. at least in the Western world. That's a good point. Um, so being able to drink it not out of necessity was probably quite a luxury and probably meant you were super fancy and able to have parties. Mm. But I think in today's society, it's probably flipped around a bit more. If you can abstain from drinking and do other fun things, you're probably seen as kind of um, more well off than the opposite. Does that make sense to you guys? Both? Yeah, yeah. Think that's true. Yeah, I would agree with that. I also wonder if it's... Um, if it's affecting millennials now too as a kind of later effect of what's going on with Generation Z because I'm noticing more and more people drinking or making a conscious effort to drink less. So, you know, we obviously have dry January now and in the last few years that's really picked up. That's true. Um, And I know for myself I'm trying to drink a lot less but then I don't have much time to do drinking like I would have done 10 years ago because, you know, I've got a job and I've got side hustles and lots of things going on. That, That time is just completely decreased. Could it also be because this is kind of post-recession and people don't have the time because they need extra jobs to pay mm-hmm. extra money because they can't afford anything anymore? Do you think that's also a factor? Um, yes, I think probably people are a lot more time-poor than they used to be. But there is a sense also of um, 
in indulgence and you know the time that you do have you want it to be special i mean we've got to we acknowledge that this is a massive part of our culture western culture at yeah, least exactly. I, I i'm i'm definitely not strong enough i think to um oh, i don't know what this says about me but i'm definitely <laughs> not strong enough i think to kind of uh, completely abstain from drinking alcohol but i also think that you know, one of the reasons why I stopped being vegan was because I actually also think that life is there to be enjoyed. Mm. Uh, I, I think that is a, another uh, aspect of the sort of double-edged virtue of our generation is that although we are very conscious and aware of many aspects, we are also very indulgent. But we've still been socially conditioned from a young age that, you know, sure. yeah, yeah, a ration is that. important going back to the root of you that, should yeah. eat meat and drink milk for your health. You know, all those things were there from our childhood. So it's quite yeah. hard to fight against that. I have noticed that people, so um, my office has a lot of people who don't drink for religious reasons, but very often when we have an event, they will drink non-alcoholic beer just to kind of replicate that experience, which is That's interesting. Really interesting. You know, what I was also thinking when I did Stoptober last year, so I gave up drinking for October, I just couldn't find anything to replace it. Mm. And there is that non-alcoholic beer, but it's really hard to find. And there, you can't drink Coca-Cola or orange juice or lemonade all night because it's so sugary. Yeah, it you won't be able to sleep. Mental. So, Angus, give us your top three hangover cures as a Generation Zer. Um, so, primarily, I will always make sure that I drink enough water. I can't really do that very often when I'm out, but I, I try to have a litre of water before going to bed. Um, second, secondly, I, um, I like to have a cold can of Coke in the morning. It's always good. But thirdly, a weird one I find is to actually be active. And I think if I go out dancing, I do, this is probably pseudoscience, but I find that it kind of combats any kind of level of um, hangover or drunkenness. If I kind of dance, I kind of like get it out. I, you're, you're looking at me as if there is no science yeah, behind that, that there's no science behind that really but sense. honestly I've really found that like, I, I find that too I think if I lie in bed I'll, I'll get really depressed and feel terrible and I'll just meditate on the thought of feeling terrible if I get up and I, it makes me stop thinking about it but I don't mean as in dancing on the morning after I mean oh you mean in like, during oh yeah during and like after so you know going out for a drink but then making sure that I like have a good dance and by mm. dance I mean like proper kind of punk mosh pits <laughs> I was thinking I was really talking about the morning after just getting up and being oh, a little god, bit no no I can, I can, I can face <laughs> so maybe then the dancing while you're drinking maybe okay maybe i'm gonna science this yeah science this maybe it increases your your heart rate which can help everything going quicker mm. so maybe you metabolize the alcohol a bit quicker and cool. you um and the acetaldehyde a little quicker but maybe also you don't drink as much if you're moving about and you're dancing because you're not sat by the bar chucking back one after the other mm. that's what i would say maybe Thank you for coming on the podcast, Angus. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for listening, everybody. Um, as always, we'd really love to hear your thoughts, so please do get in touch with us. You can tweet us at frankandwinepod, or you can send us an email, frankandwinepod at gmail.com. You've been listening to Frank and Wine. This episode was written and presented by Emma Beck and Katie Beck with editorial assistance from Daniel O'Donnell.